Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Pastor Rob Ginter and Farmdale Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at farmdalebaptist.com. I heard a word the other day from our baby. Uh, it's a three-letter word, and it's this one. Why? Now, I had flashbacks to a few years ago when our oldest uh, used that word after every sentence I said. I would say something, why? Uh, you need to eat. Why? Because you'll be hungry if you don't. Why? Because God made you that way. Why? Because he wanted to. Why? Because he saw that it was perfect, and that's what he wanted. Why? I don't know. I don't know. You know, the, the terrible twos into the three-year-old three-letter word, why? Don't we all want to know that about a lot of things in our life, though? Aren't we just like him? Aren't we just like that? You see, uh, we would like to know why things are going on like they are. And what are we really looking for when we ask that why question? We wish that God would take the events that we are currently now looking at and stretch out our view of them to see how it's going to end up. That's what we want. Here we are in Habakkuk chapter 2, and the prophet is asking God these questions in a Q&A. That's why we call it that. And God actually does it for him. God actually does it for him in chapter 2. He does this, stretching out of his view to say this is going to happen. This is technically week two on the same question as why do good things happen to bad people that we looked at last week. Why do good things happen to bad people? Habakkuk asked God that, and how did God respond? He said the upright live based on their trust in God instead of outward appearances. And maybe you weren't satisfied with that answer. So it's kind of like, God, why do evil people seem to prosper? And he responds, you live by trusting me. Not based on how it looks. Just trust. We could say, well, that's kind of a cop-out, isn't it? Just trust. Based on, pay no attention to how it looks. Trust in me. Well, we see today uh, why uh, he tells him to trust. Because of what God is going to do. So it's not just, just trust. Like, turn your brain off in order to trust God while the wicked seem like everything is going their way. It's not what this is. We sit in on this Q&A, and the prophet asks God why he's using the wicked Chaldeans to take over the seemingly less Judah, 
And God responds, I want you to trust what I'm doing. The upright live by trusting me. And God continues the answer. Here's the answer. Answer number two. We'll call this 2B. 2B. Here's what it is. God will judge all wickedness in the end. So, why does it look like the evil people are prospering? You should live based on your trust in God instead of what it looks like that's going on with them. And why should you do that? Because God will judge all wickedness in the end. All wickedness in the end. And we're going to look through, if you have your handy-dandy bulletin, these five categories or specific people or behaviors that God will judge. Five of them that we see in the text. So what are these? They're woes. And woes are warnings showing God's coming judgment and punishment on a specific people or behavior. The first one that we're looking at is that God will judge the greedy. So we should trust in God while it looks like the evil prosper because God will judge the greedy. The greedy. It's kind of ironic that he's telling us to do that because we noted the uncertainty of God's people are called to trust in him because the Chaldeans, who God describes as trusting in themselves, now God commands the people to trust in him. So, because what does pride look like? Trusting in oneself. Here in the passage, we see that God is, trust, is judging the greedy who trust in themselves. Verses 5 through 8 is where we see this. So if you do not trust in the Lord to be your provision, to feed you your very next meal, you're going to trust substitutes and likely trust all that you've accumulated for yourself. All that you've accumulated for yourself. Now, that, the, that's what the Chaldeans did. And God is comforting Habakkuk that he's going to judge them for doing that. Notice how the Chaldeans are described in verse 5. He says they're arrogant, betrayed by their wine, and never satisfied. So in other words, the Chaldeans are kind of like a drunk on a bar stool, and they're bragging about themselves. They're bragging about themselves. They boast in all they have, and they want more, and they have an appetite as strong as the grave. They never have enough. They don't trust in the Lord. They're creating for themselves their own safety net. As James Montgomery Boyce puts it, greed is a natural but destructive characteristic of one who will not trust God. If you don't trust in God, you'll trust in you. And if you trust in you, then you better have resources. And you better have those resources piled up high in case that you need them. We're not talking about someone who has a savings account, right? This is not just preaching to you so you get poorer. You go deeper in poverty 
It's not, it's not talking about not having a savings account. This is talking about someone who tries to bypass the Lord and trust in their own abundance. That's what this is. John D. Rockefeller owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry in his day. When he was asked how much money is enough, you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. One of the richest men on the planet when he was alive said, how much do I need? Just a little bit more. I could probably sell one of his shoes and buy a car. And he needs just a little bit more than that. That's kind of our attitude though, right? Towards possessions, towards money. Nobody's going to work going like, can I just get a pay cut? Because you're just paying me too much and... I don't want to be greedy, so just take this down a little bit. Just, just try not to do that. See, nobody's like that. People are more like uh, that uh, 90s country singer and theologian Daryl Singletary, if you know who that is. He said, too much fun? What's that mean? It's like too much money. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Too many possessions, you always need a little bit more. That's the attitude of the Chaldeans. Here's God's response to that in verse 6. Shall not all these things take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. So how is God going to punish them? Verse 7. Those that have taken, that they've taken from, right, their debtors, will rise up and make them tremble. So who they're oppressing by their power and their wealth, that is what God is going to do to turn the tables. They will be spoiled for those whom they took spoil from. As one commentator put it, that God is going to give them a taste of their own medicine. It says in verse 8, you have plundered many nations, now they are going to plunder you. This type of judgment will be on us who have the same attitude, by the way. Right? So here we are going through woes, going through judgments. And what do we do with a passage like this? Well, one of the things, my friends, is we try our best not to be a Chaldean in the land of Chaldea that we are in. What I'm saying is, is it's really easy to be like these people that God is going to judge because our land is full of them. If you talk to people, they're going to encourage you to get more, have more, because that's just how, how it, that's just what we call wisdom in our age. God looks at things differently. He's calling for the people of God to trust in him in the midst of coming judgment on people who are like these Chaldeans in the way that they're greedy. That's what he's doing. So the question that we need to ask of all of our possessions, do we have possessions or do possessions have us? Which one? Which one of those is true? How do you know if the problem 
isn't you having possessions, but possessions having you. How do you know? Well, lack brings this to light. Lack brings this to light. If you, if you get just off just a little bit, if you're missing just a little bit, if something's not working like you want it, you need five more of them. So when we, when we lack things, we need to pay attention to where our heart is and how it goes. Lest we pile up a bunch of things that are going to testify against us on, on the day of judgment. That we trust in, right? These are little substitutes that we go to when we say, save me, fix it, make it right, make me okay. The problem is, is that God will judge the greedy. Not only that, but look at verse 9. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of them. So God will also judge not only the greedy, but the crooked. So we've got to be careful with what we have and how we got it, because God is going to judge the crooked. The crooked. The Chaldeans were greedy, and they got whatever they could, whatever way they could. By evil ways, they're trying to set their house above all harm. This is a terrible pitch for insurance, isn't it? What's, that's what God calls their nest. They were trying to protect themselves like nests protect a bird. From history, we learned that the Chaldeans were protected by an 85 feet thick wall that was 11 miles long. So this gave them false security as the Medes and Persians would topple the, their nest in 539 BC, if you're curious, right? So these, God is saying that you who accumulate these things by shady means to protect yourself from all harm will one day be harmed. 539 BC, they were harmed. This happened. By evil dealings, they believed themselves to be out of reach. They were not out of reach. God's response in verse 10 is that your shameful plan will end in your death. Notice verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So God is using what they love as greedy, crooked people to judge them. It'd be like every dollar in your bank account testifying to you on judgment day. He tried to trust in me instead of you, God. Think about that word picture. You're there before God and you look over and it's all your stuff and you're like, ha, those, those jokers about the U-Haul were liars. See, there's all my stuff and all my money. I guess you can take it with you. You look over at your stuff and you go, those jokes are silly. See, all my stuff is here. And all your stuff testifies to you, that that's what you trusted in. So it wasn't there to comfort you. No, no. It would be there to condemn you. See, God, I'm what he trusted in, not you. It's a convicting, challenging application of this text. 
You notice these are woes, right? So this is damning perspective from God. And you say, that's, that's pretty st- a strong way of wording it. Yes, he's not inviting them to a slumber party here in the passage. No, he is saying that this will condemn you. Not, our trust in what we have, shady means by which we gathered it. Not only that, but also how we glorify ourselves because we have it. So God will judge the greedy, the crooked, and the self-glorifying. Notice verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So they built a city. They built this city on sin. Sin is what they built the city on. They got all they could, any way they could, and they built a monument to themselves. Now, this is the same attitude described in Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel. And I love how this is worded. Genesis eleven four. 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here we are. They were making a name for themselves. Later on in Genesis 11, it says that God came down to look at their city. Can't help but think of our kids. We build blocks almost on a daily basis. And the littlest one, no matter which littlest one it was, right? Three of them. Whoever's the baby at the moment comes over and goes, that's a really nice tower. Wouldn't it be terrible if I leveled it? I have to remind our oldest that our baby is not the first one who knocked over the towers. Whoever's a baby at the moment comes over and knocks it down absolutely, positively, without fail, every time. It's funny because that is exactly what God, <laughs> the picture that God paints in Genesis 11. Really cool tower. Wouldn't it be really bad if somebody just scattered you all out and mowed it down? And they did. They built a monument to themselves and propped themselves up against a holy God. I'm not saying we do that. I'm saying we are in a land that absolutely, positively does that. And we might be tempted to join in in that. So maybe we do do that. Maybe we build these buildings. Humanity has gotten too big for the britches, as they would say in Moorhead. And it's just a good reminder for us that God will set everything right in the end. Here's verse 13, God's corrective on this. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that the people's labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing. So a way of summarizing these two verses, they build their city and God's going to turn everything they've worked for to ashes. And the things that they're wearing themselves out for will be brought to nothing. See, there's two categories here in this verse if you look at it. There are the people or the nations and the Lord of hosts. See, they are greedy for whatever they can get, however they can get it. They pile it up, make a safety net to glorify themselves. And the second category has one person in it. 
One person in the second category, the Lord of hosts, or the CSB translated, the Lord of armies. He's going to bring to nothing what they wear themselves out for. And just like our kids, you're really frustrated because it was a really nice tower. It was a really nice castle or whatever it was. And he just came over and he knocked it down. It's a pile. Used to be a castle, now it's a pile. Used to be a career, now it's a line on the obituary. See how that goes? It used to be something I gave all my extra time to. It used to be a hobby. Now it's a line on the obituary and it didn't even make it as high as the career. It went family's names, career, hobby. It used to be all of these things, and now it's in the obit pages. That's where it is. So we look at our life from that perspective. And we listen to even the words of James about the things that we pursue. James tells us, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. How devastating would it be to look back on our life and be in the same category as the Chaldeans? Because when we look at Habakkuk, we all want to be the good guy. So we read through the book of Habakkuk and we go, well, God, I, I have questions about why things are going on in this world. And the application from the text could be, well, you're one of the Chaldeans. You're prospering now, but you'll be punished later. You're living your best life in these moments. And it's going to be your only good one. Because the next one's going to be literal hell. So we put our, ourselves in the perspective of Habakkuk and we say, God, why are you doing this? Meanwhile, we're the Chaldeans. It's possible. It's possible. Some of us are building a city that, we've wear, that we have wore ourselves out for. And God will judge it. And this is why it's so devastating in verse 14. God interrupts the first three woes to say this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, there's all this judgment, all of this stuff that your building is going to be knocked down. Oh, by the way, there is coming a day when the entire earth, right? They're talking about building a city or a town or a house, whatever. There's going to be a day when the attributes and the presence of God will cover the earth like glory as waters cover the sea. That's where this goes. So are we building our life and working toward something that God is going to knock down like a baby and some blocks? Or are we working for a day that God will fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory like the waters. It's 
why it's disastrous if we're working to something else that, glorify, that glorifies us, that it will pass away. And the one thing that will remain is God and his kingdom and his glory. The glory of God is going to remain to be bigger than a house or a city. This is a call for repentance, knowing that God will judge people who live for their own glory. It's certainly the case. He will judge the greedy, the crooked, the self-glorifying. Not only that, but the seducing. You go, this one's kind of odd. It's kind of strange. Well, this fourth woe is in verse 15, in which the Chaldeans will be punished for getting their neighbors drunk so they can see him naked. And before you check out and say, well, check that one off the list. I didn't do that this week. It's been a pretty good week. I didn't do that. Before we do that, know that this is just talking about seducing their neighbor in order to take advantage of them when they were vulnerable. That this could be talking about a, a sexual sin, but definitely taking advantage of vulnerable people. And here's God's response to verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Put differently, you who live on the shame of others, have yourself a drink and show that you are not a part of the people of God. Show that you're not a part of God's people. It's a graphic way of saying it. This point is here that people who treat others disgracefully will be shamed by God in the end. Not only shamed, but look at the next phrase in the verse. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. See the competing glories here in the verse. There's going to be a day, there will be a day, in verse 14, in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Meanwhile, those that oppose him, shame will cover and come upon their glory. What's the cup? You all know this from Jeremiah 25, 15 and Isaiah 51. Both references and other prophets that talk about the wrath of God coming. The wrath of God. They'll drink in the punishment of God like it's a drink. They've seduced others and took advantage of them. God's cup of judgment is going to come around to them. It shows us Galatians 6, 7 is always true. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Now, isn't this good news? Isn't it good news for us who have been taken advantage of when we were vulnerable? We've been abused. We've been hurt. Isn't it good news for us that God will repay them retribution and righteous judgment? So what do we do differently because of verses 15 through 17? What do we do differently? Well, we know that God is going to judge those 
who take advantage of the vulnerable and seduce them and use their position of power or your position of vulnerability against you. This is good news because it means that you don't have to right the wrongs. And this is great news because some wrongs you know, you know, maybe they're already dead. Maybe it's impossible to get back at them for what they've done to you. I mean, you can't rape them back, can you? No, not with a good conscience. No. You can't do that. But you know, this is great news for us. That we just can't make it right. We can't fix it. There's, no, there's, there's nothing we can do to undo the situation. You can't undo what they said. You can't undo what you've seen. You can't undo what you've been a part of. You can't undo it. There is a cup. It's in the Lord's hands. And it will come around. It will come around. Paul says this in Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That the vengeance of God on those who have seduced the vulnerable is certain and sure. So you may be hurt, but you don't have to be the writer of wrongs. You may have been taken advantage of, but you don't have to fix it because maybe you can't. Maybe there's nothing you can do. You've went through all legal dis discourse and, and, they're, they're not going to do anything to the person who hurt you. They're not going to do it. There is one, my friends, who will do it. And he will not just do it partially. And he won't do it a little bit. He will do it right. He will right all wrongs. So maybe there's a wrong that we've been hit with that we can't right. There's nothing we can do. It's encouragement for us that there is something that God can do and there is something that God will do. And it will be perfectly executed on his timetable, in his way, and in his hand. He will do it. This tells us that we should leave it to the wrath of God. That's how Paul's advice on how to handle a Chaldean. He tells us that we, uh, Romans 12, 20, right? To be, take care of them, be kind to them, to heap coals of kindness on their head, not, e not meeting evil with evil, not just not meeting evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good. You don't have to get into the mud with them. You don't. You don't have to go into the mudslinging with them. God will judge all wickedness in the end, including the seducing, including those that, that abuse and take advantage of, of people who are in weak moments. 
That is along with the greedy, the crooked, self-glorifying as well. He certainly will. And finally, the idolaters in verses 18 through 20. Beginning in verse 18, he says that, that uh, what, good is it, what good is it for somebody to make an idol? For someone to make an idol and bow down to what they made. Listen to what he says about the God makers. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. These people will be punished because they're trying to get their own creation to respond to them. See what he's saying there? You're trying to get what they've made to respond to them. On the outside, these idols are shiner than a bass boat with gold and silver. But on the inside, there is no breath. They're not alive. This echoes the prophet Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. When he mocks them, he says, yell louder. Maybe your gods can't hear you. Maybe they're on the toilet. That's a paraphrase. It's probably not, I mean, like that's the essence of the Hebrew. Maybe he's taking a trip. You see, before we write off idolatry, we have to admit there are people who give undue attention to things that are not God and try to make those things come to the rescue. Respond to me, is what he's saying. Anytime you look to someone or something that is not the one true living God and say, rescue me, rescue me. I'm okay, at least I have. Fill in the blank. It's idolatry. Idolatry. Here's the problem with idolatry, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The problem with worshiping something other than God is that God who made the covenant with his people is sitting alive in his temple. Instead of trying to get things that we've made to respond to us, we need to respond to the God who is in his holy temple. That's what we have to do. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Instead of trying to get dead things to respond, we need to respond to the one who's alive. That's what we do. It's for worshiping any other thing than him. Woe to us. This judgment is upon us one day will be fully realized. You see, while the wicked seem to be triumphing in our day, living their best life now, this is a description of their worst day when he says that the cup will come around to them. And you see, it doesn't have to be like that because maybe, maybe we're greedy, crooked, self-glorifying, seducing God-maker idolater of ourselves. Maybe that is us. Well, the good news for you, if you say, yeah, I look at the stuff, pile up, I like to pile up, I like to pile it up even higher. It doesn't really matter to me how I get the money that I get. I get it any way I can get it. Sounds like the world in which we live in. And why would I give glory to another? I, I am a self-made person. I worked hard for this. I did this. See, those are the statements that reveal the judgment of God is upon us. Those things. That's the attitude that he's talking about here. The problem is, 
that we've sinned and separated ourselves from a holy God because we thought that we could provide for ourselves and be our own man or our own woman. There's a biblical word for that. It's called sin. And it's separated us from God. The good news is that instead of God coming down to knock down our tower, God came down and took on flesh. Not just to ruin the party and to devastate us. No, to walk among us. He lived the perfect life. He never did anything wrong. Everything he had, he depended on God for. Like we should have. He never was crooked. He glorified the Father. He never took advantage of the vulnerable. He never worshipped anything other than God. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus. These are the attributes of him, of whom we, with our sin, put on the cross. So he lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose on the third day, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and everything in between. Rising triumphantly on the third day after being dead, he now commands that you turn from trusting in yourselves and the things that you've piled up and the things that you have buried in the mason jars in your backyard because you don't trust the banks. And that you turn from your crooked, self-glorifying, seducing idolatry and trust solely in the person of the Lord Jesus who took that cup for us, taking the wrath of God, drinking it all for us. On the cross. He took the cup so that we could have his crown, his, his status, that is, before God the Father. That's what he did. So today, if you're not a Christian, turn from trusting in yourself to the only one worth trusting, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as he triumphed, he is returning, my friends, to put down the rebellion fully and finally of all the creatures. God is not going to let evil succeed forever. But we should trust him because he is both judging now and coming to judge it all and to fix it all. If you are a Christian, this causes you to look at the world differently, that you don't have to be a vigilante with a mask and a cape in the evenings. I know I ruined some of your plans. But there are, there are wrongs that you can't fix, and you know it. This calls us to greater trust in the one who's going to right all wrongs. That's how we need to respond to the, together. Also, we should look at these five woes to make sure that we're not one of the Chaldeans, right? Was I talking about you when I said these things? The greedy, the crooked, the self-glorifying, the seducing, or the idolater. This is not, we're going to have a time of response during this next song, and it's just an opportunity to repent of these things and trusting God to right all of these things in our world. Pastor Jonathan is going to come join me up in the front and we will pray with you if you'd like or we can talk to you back there. 
But let's respond to the Lord today. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. We ask that you would uh, intervene in our hearts to cause us to trust that you are going to right all wrongs. That's why we can trust you in these moments, because it's all part of what you're doing in the world. Create more trust in us, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Have mercy on us as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.